Welcome to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with innovators, challenging the status quo to create a better world. You're listening to Season 1, our series on space as a service. I'm your host, Caleb Parker. That's at Caleb underscore Parker on Twitter and Instagram. And this season, I'll be chatting with executives creating the future of commercial real estate. If you're a landlord, if you're an asset owner, if you're an agent, if you're in corporate real estate, you need to be listening because we're answering all the questions you need to know about space as a service. Welcome back to the Hashtag Work Bold podcast in this final episode of season one. Before we get started, I want to thank each of our guests for helping us answer all questions space as a service this season. Thank you goes out to Anthony Slumbers, Lucy Watts of the Instinct Group, Mark Bott from Colliers, James Goldsmith over at AXA Investment Managers, Dan Hughes, Liquid Real Estate, Matthew Filkin, Alma Cantor, Elaine Russell from JLL, Mark Tyson from Legal and General Investment Management, Chris Richmond, from, who's the head of real estate for PwC. And of course, um, I will say my thank you to the end of this podcast for our current guest, who I will talk about in a moment. A special thanks goes out to Paul Unger and the Place Tech team for covering each of our episodes this season. Thank you to Jason Allen Scott and a podcast company who this podcast wouldn't be possible without. And last but not absolutely, absolutely not least, thank you for listening each week. We're going to finish this season talking about what's next for Space as a Service, which requires a discussion around the money. Show me the money. And there's no better person to chat with than Dror Poleg. Dror, welcome to the show. Hi, Caleb. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's great. Great to have you here. Look, I think your bio, your reputation, everybody, I think everybody in real estate already knows you. But just for those people who might be tuning in for the first time, who haven't heard you, you guys need to go look drawer up on LinkedIn, but he's uh, he is the money uh, when it comes to real estate. He's uh, been involved in the past of, of managing $3 billion worth of property portfolios. Um, he's now advising companies uh, all over the world. He's been quoted in some of the leading uh, publications, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Business Insider. He's quoted by PwC, KPMG. He's often found in the boardrooms um, with Cushman and Wakefield, Avalon Bay Communities, British Land, Liberty. I could go on this list forever. I'm just lucky to have him in this room with me today. Go to George's website. It is Rethinking Real Estate, so rethinking.re. And you can find his book. He just wrote a book called Rethinking Real Estate. And everything you need to know about the future of real estate is in there. And uh, we've, we've got actually every one of our guests this season uh, got a copy of your book. <laughs> Excellent. Thank um, you. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, you're, I think it's, um, probably embarrassing to, to keep going on like this, but you are one of the people that I look up to in the industry and I'm often on, um, on Twitter. Uh, you're the one building the things, Caleb. I'm just writing. Well, um, I, I appreciate you. So today we're going to be diving into, cause you wrote an article on LinkedIn talking about how to finance the future of real estate. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say how to finance the future of space as a service, because I think that's the future of real estate. I agree. Thank you. And I want to, I want to dive in to that article because I thought it was profound and there's certain things I want to pick apart if that's okay. Go right ahead. So in your article, you refer to the hotel industry offering a few hints into the future of WeWork because you mm-hmm. talk about WeWork. So there's a few hints into the future of WeWork with lessons that we can all take away for how to finance the next phase of growth for space as a service. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So in the office world and the residential world, and even in the industrial real estate world, 
uh, there's a growing gap between what the customers want and what the landlords and their investors and lenders are willing to give them. There's basically a missing service layer there in the middle, uh, whether it is to add the flexibility, to add some sort of brand that people can relate to, uh, to add all sorts of on-site services, some level of finishing that is not offered by traditional landlords. And uh, in the hotel industry, obviously this has always been the case. And what we saw happen there over the last few decades uh, was the emergence of companies that are separate from the owners and separate from the kind of traditional managers of the buildings that focus only on you know, the actual consumer facing brand, that focus on impacting the design of the product, on marketing it on an ongoing basis, on defining the level of service and sometimes even doing the service work themselves, but doing so under companies that are completely separate from the companies that own the building, which also means that they're funded by different investors that have very different expectations. And overall, these operating businesses have a very different risk profile from just owning a piece of real estate. So today, you know, the, the Marriott's of the world barely own or even lease you know, a percent or a few percent of the buildings. I think it was 3% the last time I looked. Yeah, uh, it's probably less now because they merged and they're even bigger. But And I think in Europe, some of the hotel companies tend to lease more, but even they, they don't own uh, so much. Now, when you look at the world of office and residential, mostly they're the, the kind of the operator. First, often the owner is the operator as well. And if there's a separate operator, it's more of a company that kind of takes care of the asset itself. It takes care of the building, makes sure that it's clean, that the elevators run on time, that it is safe. But it doesn't really extend itself to, to you know, to real customer service. It definitely doesn't have a, a consumer brand. Now, when you try to fill that gap because of the changes in demand, I mean, because customers now expect different things and have different needs, uh, what we've seen over the last few years, like the, the biggest example was WeWork. So they, what they did do right is identify a real need from customers and really go all out to deliver on that need, maybe go too far out Very to far deliver out. on that need. And the customers loved it. I think there is, I could say, insatiable demand for flexible space of a certain type. But on the other hand, we saw that they didn't finance it properly. I mean, apart from the fact that they weren't very discerning in terms of the, the pace of expansion, the biggest problem that came back and bit them in the desk, yes. in the chair, was the fact that they used venture capital funding to, uh, to finance that expansion. So basically taking very expensive money from people that are used to investing in technology and putting it you know, in leases and in build-outs. Uh, and that's not the right way to go about it. So what we have to see now is how these office companies and even the co-living and kind of new residential and even the new hospitality companies uh, that are doing long-term long-term rentals, short-term rentals, but kind of longer term than a hotel, have to find a new way to basically finance their inventory. So Okay, so I want to I stop right there for a minute. Um, you, you talk about WeWork in the article, and you just said mm -hmm. it now. WeWork should not use venture capital to finance long leases mm -hmm. or building acquisitions. I think you actually said that twice in your article specifically mm -hmm. to make a point. So would you give the same advice to other operators in the sector then? Yeah, generally, I think, listen, I'm not going to say that they shouldn't sign a lease ever again, because even some hotel companies sign leases and even retailers sign leases. And I think the nature of their demand is not less fleeting than the nature of, of flexible office demand. You know, Starbucks has to sell lots of coffees every day in order to make rent. So theoretically, tomorrow, everyone can decide not to drink coffee anymore. And Starbucks has long term obligations and very short term commitments from customers. But it does mean that if you sign a lease, you have to be much more discerning. 
you have to roll as many of the build-out costs to uh, someone else, whether it is the landlord or some investor that comes in between. Uh, and it means that you should work with investors that are there in order to sign leases and finance leases. Now, investors like that exist in the world. They're not venture capital investors. More importantly, there's other models in the hotel world that, that are probably more appropriate. So whether it is a management agreement where you, know, you get a, a piece of the revenue and the rest of it goes to the owner of the building, uh, or if it's a franchise agreement where, again, you might bring a third party to be the franchisee and then they finance it, or the landlord, the owner themselves can, can uh, take on the franchise and then they pay you something back, uh, but the rest goes to them. Or even an arrangement called a sandwich lease uh, which helps bridge that gap where if the hotel or flexible space operator doesn't want to sign a long-term lease and the landlord doesn't want a partnership, a third party that is a financial entity can come in the middle and say, hey, you know, I want to have a piece of the upside here, so I'm going to sign the lease and then I'm going to sign a revenue sharing agreement with the operator and, you know, enjoy the upside and share that risk that, you know, if all goes wrong, I, I'm still liable uh, to pay that lease to the landlord. And are, are there instances in the hotel in industry that you can speak to that do that right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a specific case in mind, but it's all of these examples are very, very common and happen all the time. So, I mean, that's the thing that in the hotel industry, it's, there are standards and there are normal ways of doing things. Obviously, every deal can be a little different. Uh, the challenge now in the flexible office world is that there's no standards mm -hmm. yet. Uh, so people are starting to experiment, particularly after the WeWork uh, fiasco. I think everyone has been pushed to really slow down on just signing leases. And at the same time, landlords are becoming open-minded because they realize that, you know, WeWork might go away, but the, the change in demand is not going away. And they have to find how, how to accommodate that, which means partnering with people. And obviously they want to share the revenue because they want the upside. So you know, we're uh, seeing more and more of that. Three years ago, when I started talking to landlords mm -hmm. about management agreements, and I said this on a one of our previous episodes, they looked at me like with a blank stare on my face. And, you know, I think the way- like, What can you do that I can't do? Like, well, why it's, do I it's, it's partly that, yeah. But I think it's also the, there's, the way buildings are valued, mm -hmm. is very reliant on long-term leases. Yep. But, you know, in your article, you talk about how the demand for space as a service has grown so much and owners are finally coming to terms with the fact that the old way of leasing space is obsolete. So in, in the article, you talk about management agreements and um, franchise deals with traditional landlords. Is that, is that why you're keen on that? Because the old way of doing business is obsolete? Yeah, I think, you know, and the, an interesting thing happened in the office market for the past few years. And WeWork became some sort of a bogeyman or, you know, people blame WeWork for the new risk, blame WeWork for the new flexibility, uh, blame WeWork for the experiments that they've been running. And while some of them have been misguided, I think ultimately WeWork is basically taking on risk that belong to the landlords. It didn't create risk. It just, you know, the tenants themselves are not willing to commit for such long periods, more and more of them and larger and larger companies. The tenants themselves are expecting more and more service and more and more build-outs, which costs money and someone has to pay for them. Now, landlords have been sheltered, basically, from that reality by companies like WeWork and Notel and others that took money that came from outside the industry, from mostly venture investors, and said, hey, we'll take that risk upon ourselves. So you're still going to get a long-term lease because we're going to sign it with you. So things will look good on your end. But actually, we will absorb that risk now. Today, it's already becoming clear that they, even they cannot absorb that risk. So, so you think then that the SoftBank, the, the investors mm -hmm. that we were, they delayed 
the, the realization, the realization yeah. from these from real estate. Yeah, they basically said, hey, there's all this new risk here that is inherent with what it means to be an office landlord today. We didn't create that risk. The risk is there because the nature of demand has changed. Just like, you know, people book a hotel every night. So it's a riskier thing. So, you know, hotels are not riskier than offices because they're owned, operated by Marriott. They're riskier just because people are only willing to, to sign a lease with you for a night or two, and then they go somewhere else and you have to find someone new. Uh, so we're starting to see a similar dynamic in office. But landlords over the past couple of years, when they looked at their traditional metrics, they thought that things have never been better. They said, hey, occupancy is super high. These crazy companies are paying me above market rent. They're signing leases quickly. I must be a genius. You know, why do I need to change anything? Let these idiots go and sign leases. But now as we work in hotel and others pull back a little, landlords suddenly say, oops, okay. Yeah. My actual customers, the actual end users, they don't want my product. So well, someone needs to step in and, you know, fill that gap. And if I'm going to do it, it's going to be very difficult because my investors just expect to get, you know, 4% a year. They don't want me to go into all sorts of adventures. They don't want me to build a brand or invest in technology or, you know, or do all sorts of things that, that WeWork would do or that Bold would do. And, and to fill that gap, they now are starting to become more open-minded on partnerships because they definitely don't want to do it alone. And some of them are trying, a few will succeed, but I think most of them will realize that it's just a different type of business. Even if you can do it well, you probably don't want to. Well, I've, I've seen quite a few landlords strike some partnership mm -hmm. deals man on management agreements yeah. lately. Um, there's a couple in, in New York that's come up. Philly was announced today. Yeah. And in here in London, there's been a few landlords that are doing it themselves. Yeah. I think all of these are positive movements, mm -hmm. um, but even going back to this, a lot of the conversations that I've had, people still point at valuation, and that's been the big, it, particularly in the UK, that's been the big barrier yep. for the proliferation of management agreements. Do you expect this to change anytime soon? I think so. It will take some time. I mean, the lenders naturally are the most conservative uh, link in the value chain and the supply chain. Uh, of real estate, but they're also starting to understand that actually the asset is becoming inherently riskier and the way to de-risk it is to make sure that it's operated properly by someone who actually knows how to generate demand and how to keep the customers coming back every day. So here too, the hotel and lodging industry is very instructive. You know, today in the office world, if you would go to a bank and say, hey, 50% of this building is operated by a, you know, a branded flex operator, the bank would tell you, oh, that's really risky, you know. I don't like that stuff. But if you go to a hotel, to a bank and say, hey, I just bought this beautiful building in the center of London. It's amazing. Great bones, great location. Help me finance it. The bank would actually tell you, okay, that building is very nice, but you need to get a branded operator because otherwise this building is not going to last. So it's exactly the opposite case. And I think increasingly we will see lenders starting to understand that having that the risk is inherent in the asset itself and having an operator that knows how to manage that risk and doesn't pretend that it's not there is actually better for the asset. Now, it doesn't mean that any type of operator is correct and it doesn't mean that the whole building should be flexible. So there's a lot of margin for error, room for, for wrong, Certainly. for errors there. But, but ultimately, this is where we'll be, that banks will learn to appreciate those good operators that are proven, that can generate demand. Uh, that can de-risk the asset just by being affiliated with it. And do you expect that these operators will, um, just like in the hotel industry, mm -hmm. you've got um, a Marriott, for instance, that has yeah. multiple brands underneath it. 
to go into different assets. Yeah. Is that going to happen here as well? I think so. Yeah. I mean, we're starting to see that a little bit already. I mean, we don't have, I mean, there's only a handful of real leaders uh, and then there's hundreds of other smaller companies, but even among those leaders, you can see very, I mean, WeWork is very different from Convene and it's very different from the office group and it's very different from Notel and very different from Bold. Each one of them has, you know, a slightly different demographic in mind, different price point, different experience, focus even on different types of buildings. Uh, they also have a lot in common, again, just like a ho many hotels have a lot in common, but still they, they market themselves differently. They've, so okay. they segment their markets. So in, in your article, just going back to that again, you talk about a uh, capital stack. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious what your view, and maybe if you could summarize part of what you said a moment ago, what is the future of finance or, or what this capital stack, as you like to call it, of commercial real estate? So I think we will see a combination of a few sources of funding. And uh, interestingly enough, it looks like the co-living industry seems to be ahead of co-working on that front. So over there, there are a few companies such as Common or Venn, uh, which rely on an interesting mix. So they raised some venture capital to help them build their brand, develop some technology or capabilities, sign some leases to kind of prove a point and prove their concept, but then beyond that, they go ahead and they raise separate money from investors that are real estate investors who can come and buy assets for them or even sign long leases for them in order to get a piece of the revenue. Now, the people that buy the real estate don't necessarily have a percentage or equity in the platform itself or in the technology. These are people that want to invest in real estate, so they get to invest in the real estate with the benefit of coming in with an operator that has, you know, a superior model that can generate more income uh, and, you know, being early into an emerging asset class. Then on top of that, these companies rely on some traditional business debt and even bank loans to just finance some of their activities, including installing furniture or fixing up certain things. Just like, you know, a, you know, a, a dentist's office would take a business loan to buy furniture. They do the same thing. So they don't go to, you know, SoftBank and ask them for money and then go ahead and buy desks. They just go to the bank and say, hey, I have a business here. I don't have the risk of the lease because someone else already signed that for me. I have separate investors that finance my technology thing. All I'm asking is, you know, that you give me a loan against anything that the normal business would take as well. So they get some of that. Uh, and then on top of it, they sometimes raise other debt or other things on the project basis and they make it work. So they take advantage of each source of capital for whatever it's good for. So venture for, for the kind of technology and the scalable stuff, real estate people to buy the real estate, traditional business lending for normal business activities and kind of day-to-day -day working capital. Uh, and that seems much more reasonable. And I think the hotel companies do the same thing. So in the flex world, in the office, we mostly saw people take money from one source and then go and burn it in all directions and kind of try to see what will happen in the end. And, and often it doesn't end very well. Well, it's, it's different because the, the VC return on investment expectations are, are much higher yeah. than, than an investor or, or a fund that's buying a piece of real estate. They're, they're much higher. And worse than that, they kind of expect a different dynamic. So even you know if you look at private equity real estate, the expectations there for a total return are, some, are often the same. You know, people would look for a 20% IRR, or 25% IRR. But, uh, you know, a Blackstone that buys a piece of land, like a speculative project that they know would take seven to 10 years, they know that sometimes for four years, nothing will happen at all. 
there'll be no income. Maybe there'll be no income even until year seven or eight. But once the income is there, you capitalize it, you sell it to someone, you make a big hit. But in venture, they have the same time horizon, but actually they need you to pretend every month that you're making progress to get a higher valuation, to show some results, to tell a story, which drives people like WeWork to grow faster than they should, to pretend that there's something that they're not. So even though they use technology extensively and they do so much better than a traditional operator, they're not a software company, but they have to start pretending that they are in order to sell the story, in order to get a higher valuation in the next round. Uh, so it's creating all sorts of unhealthy incentives, uh, which ultimately leads to, to what we saw happen with WeWork. So even though, again, the return expectations are too high, but also they, they expect you to keep increasing the valuation on paper, I think a lot of the last large round that SoftBank did before the IPO attempt was really about that. They wanted to raise a new fund. So on paper, they wanted to show that the WeWork valuation went up. So they went and put in more money at a, at a very unreasonable valuation. And then for a few months at the end of, I think, 2018, SoftBank could show that their you know, investment in WeWork went from a company that was $20 billion or $24 billion to a $47 billion company. So on paper, they made a lot of money, so it looked great. They could go ahead and tell investors, hey, look, our, our performance for this fund is much higher than, you know, than anyone else in the industry. But this is all paper money. It's not, it's not based on cash flow. It's not based on a real ex exit. A year later, they have to write it off again, but they were hoping maybe that by then <laughs> they would finish raising the, the second fund. They didn't, so they got caught up. Well, the, the story the story is not not finished for that book, right. uh, I don't think. Um, and 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 I know you've got a Twitter poll that keeps resurfacing on which company is going to be more valuable in the, in the near future, um, Airbnb yeah. or WeWork. Thirty months, we'll see. You want to disclose who you're voting for? I'm voting for WeWork, I think, still after all. all in right. thirty months, yeah, not tomorrow. But okay. I think. I mean, I think the office market people fail to realize that it's so much bigger than the hotel and hospitality market. Maybe even a hundred times larger. And unlike what Airbnb is facing, the office market doesn't really have formidable competitors. You know, Airbnb is facing first Marriott itself and a few other large hotel companies were, you know, $50 billion companies. They've been using technology for generations. They're very focused on their customers. There's a lot that they can do better, but they're very, they understand the challenge and they're very aggressive. It took them a while. Yeah. And then you, you have these online travel agents like Expedia and Booking sure. also fierce, fierce competitors, very thin margins, very aggressive. Also large companies, 50 to like $80 billion companies. So Airbnb is facing them. WeWork is still the biggest company of its kind. It's competing mostly against landlords that are not, they don't even understand where the, where the battle is. You know, there's still, most of them are still in denial about the fact that you should start even going into that business. Uh, those that are going into that business are doing some interesting things, but very modest in, in size. Uh, so I think WeWork still has the potential. I mean, the hospitality industry has multiple companies that are 40 billion plus companies. The office world doesn't have even one operator like that. And, you know, in five years, it will have more than one. And WeWork still has a good chance to be one of those companies. So... Well, it's certainly an exciting time in the spaces of service world. I want to sort of come back to this question again and press you a little bit on it. Mm -hmm. With the, the future of financing spaces of service yeah. and the capital stack, you, you talked about the various areas of capital coming from yeah. different investor profiles. Um, do you think that a, a Propco Opco brand 
will emerge? Or do you, maybe they're already out there? I mean, you've got, for instance, in London, mm -hmm. there's a, a brand called Fora. Fora, right. And, That's and what I was you know, thinking. They've got the, the Propco is, is, is uh, Brockton. Yep. But do you see that being one in the same company or, is, or do you think that's going to be more of a partnership indefinitely? So I think we're going to see a bit of both, but definitely we're going to see more Propco, Opco arrangements in office. Uh, I mean, you could say that, that uh, Blackstone and the office group is the same arrangement. It didn't emerge organically. It was an, an acquisition, but basically Blackstone said, hey, we own a lot of assets. We want to have in our portfolio an operator that, you know, in the future we can bring into buildings that we own and we can support them and that maybe when there's a crisis or when there's suddenly a lot of supply and we need to reposition a lot of buildings, we can bring these capabilities to bear. And it's a separate business, but it's all part of the family and, you know, there's a strategic relationship there. So I definitely think we'll see more of that, uh, particularly with the large private equity real estate firms. So Blackstone, Brookfield, uh, you mentioned Fora, which is uh, Brockton. So, I mean, slightly smaller company, but the same type of thinking. Same, yeah, and Common did the same thing, I believe, with Carlisle Group. Right. Yeah, as well. Well, that's fascinating. Um, it's certainly an exciting time. Is there, do, do you have a... A preference over the Propco Opco acquisition versus a traditional landlord like British Land launching mm -hmm. their own platform, or do you like the Propco companies, asset manager uh, in funds, partnering with the op branded operators in under JVs or management? Degrees? Is there a preference, or does it matter? I think it really depends. So, I mean, we will we will see all of these things at the same time. I don't think there'll be a single answer. Just like in the hotel world, there's different things in different markets. Uh, you know, some, often it depends on things that have nothing to do with real estate, you know, just like the tax regime or something like that. But I do think that longer term, trying to keep everything under one company will be very difficult uh, because, you know, some landlords now are finally starting to experiment with Flex. So they're like, OK, we can accommodate some of these new activities under our current structure and convince our investors that it's OK. But meanwhile, the kind of pure operators keep pushing the boundaries further and further and adding more things and spending money on other things that seem crazier and crazier to a landlord. And I think at some point, landlords wouldn't be able to chase them down that rabbit hole anymore. They'll say, OK, this is something that I can't do, that I can't justify under my current structure and under my current cost of capital. And my investors, which are usually, especially for the REITs, they're income investors, they just expect, you know, a coupon, you know, sure. the dividend. Yep. Uh, they're not looking to get into adventures and they'll say, okay, why don't you spin that off? It's probably more valuable in itself anyway than, than under this roof. It's easier for analysts to value it that way. You have the operating business, you have the assets themselves. Uh, the investors will be happier, the lenders will be happier. And also, yeah, the people who can manage the, the buildings can still focus on you know, taking care of the building, which is important enough and challenging enough and valuable and will always remain valuable. And the people that can take care of the operating business We'll do that. So just like Starbucks doesn't, you know, is not a landlord and landlords are not opening coffee shops to compete with Starbucks, even though it looks very easy, you know, oh, okay, what's the big deal? I own the space. I'm just going to put a coffee machine. Throw up some white walls and yeah. a couple of desks, call it co-working. But once you start doing it at scale and once you really start to compete on the marketing, and especially if you plan to make money, you realize, okay, I need to have 3000 Starbucks stores in order to actually cover my GNA. And I have to think about it all day and all night because otherwise I'm going to fall behind. So if I'm also busy with thinking on all the other things and dealing with the local government and planning authority and tax and property management, uh, I yeah. can't do everything in most cases. So long term, I think it should be split into a separate company. It could be under you know, the, same, the same group. 
but it, the, the company that owns the assets will struggle to, uh, to also do everything that's necessary to, to operate them to their highest and best use. So I have one more question uh, before we jump into the quickfire round. And this is, I asked the same version of this question mm-hmm. in my last episode with, uh, with Chris Richmond from the PwC. Yeah. And the question is, because Chris was talking about, um, I guess his disappointment often, it seems to be a disconnect between the, the, the money, the owners of the assets, yeah. the managers of the assets, and then his company, the people who are actually using the space. Yeah. Uh, and the disconnect is the service and the quality of service that they want to provide their teams, that the managers aren't living up to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's because obviously their their focus is on making money for the owner. Yep. Do you think that the value of managers um, being a sort of a middleman, do you think that it's going to get stronger and, and they're going to look to partner with um, these operator brands? For, for space as a service, or do you think that the money will bypass the managers and go directly to the brands? I think we're already seeing that the money is bypassing some managers. You know, we saw here in, in, uh, in London, the Devonshire Square story, you know, uh, PFS and Nuveen just go to WeWork directly and say, hey, you know, instead of us giving our money to another private equity firm or another type of sponsor, and then they'll go and sign a partnership with you or bring you in as a tenant, we'll just buy the building, we'll do a direct deal, you can get a little piece, you'll operate part of it. Maybe as flex becomes more necessary, you can take a bigger part and that's it. Uh, we're also seeing both WeWork and a lot of the other companies, again, I think co-living leading the way here, going ahead and raising their own private equity funds, essentially from people who just wanna buy assets that are operated by these companies. So yeah, I think a lot of managers in real estate are, you know, they've been collecting checks for far too long and not doing enough uh, for it. I mean, I've worked, you know, in China, some of the shopping malls were built, you know, we sold to very large and reputable managers uh, and they basically came in. We still operated the building that we developed. Uh, we, we kept a financial uh, piece of it and they just came in and collected an, another, another coupon on top of us uh, on behalf of their investors. I mean, their investors could have just come directly to us. And here too, technology makes a difference. I think with more access to information and with the ease of communication, institutional investors are becoming more and more confident to do things on their own. And we're seeing the rise of direct deals in general, even beyond the kind of how it fits into the the space as a service world, because they understand that, okay, actually I know the market well enough. I have access to all these tools. Why do I need to pay someone two and 20 to, you know, introduce me to something that's already on the market. They're going to bring a third party operator anyway you know, a CBRE or a Cushman or a JLL, and maybe today also a flexible operator. So all of these things are off the shelf. The motors are standardized. Why do I need to pay someone so much money for it? Particularly when yields are so compressed and everyone is just chasing, you know, every half a percent or a quarter of a percent makes such a big difference today that, you know, the, the fees collected by the middlemen make less and less sense. And their ability to add value is more and more limited for many of them. There's some that are doing great work, but many are just really... Yeah, I had, had, a meeting, had a meeting last week with the CEO of an investment company, and mm. they have a um, basically a white-labeled version of Spaces as a Service yeah. Operation in one of their assets. They've just launched it recently, and they've partnered with one of the managers to operate it. Mm-hmm. And uh, what that manager's doing is outsourcing every bit of it. Yeah. So 
the the hospitality, the concierge. They brought in a, a little bit of tech, and but it's all outsourced by multiple suppliers. And what I find interesting is, can you imagine checking into a hotel and and the hotel brand not employing the people working there and yeah. outsourcing every single bit of it? It's just I I can imagine it. And I can even think that it could work, but only for certain types of assets at a certain price point. Uh, but in most cases, it wouldn't be the, the best experience or mm -hmm. the best, uh, best financial outcome, I think. Okay, so now for the quick fire round. Simple, quick answers, light, but... I'm very jet lagged, so caveat. Okay, well, it's, um, <laughs> it's, you're, you're just waking up right now, right? Yes, in New York. <laughs> okay, so who inspires you in our industry? Ooh. Who inspires? Wow, that's a tough question, which says a lot. Uh, well, I'm in London. I think the guys from the office group, like Charlie, is a great guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like what they built. I like their product, and also I just like you know, the way they are as people. That they're very human and they're, they they pace themselves and yeah, very down to earth. Yeah, they're so humble for the success that they've had. Mm -hmm. Both Charlie and Ali. Okay, good. What books and podcasts do you consume besides your own? <laughs> Ooh, so podcasts, I mean, I have a new favorite now, yours, which really, I mean, I really appreciate that you're diving into the details and the nitty gritty and the really technical stuff. So beyond all the hype that you can Thank hear you. elsewhere, you know, it's really like questions that people that are trying to change things are facing. Uh, I like Ben Thompson's podcast and, and newsletter. I've been, you know, an, an avid listener and reader for many years and enjoying his success. Uh, I like to listen to kind of pick and choose individual podcasts based on topics so not necessarily sure. follow. So, you know, I like a lot of history, uh, economic history. I like Ross Roberts's Econ Talk. It's pretty fun often. Uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, I think it's called Invest with the Best. Okay. Uh, so he's a money manager, but he invites a lot of interesting people also in real estate and in tech and in everything else and asks very thoughtful questions. Uh, and yeah, and I could go on, but that's probably enough. In terms of books, I'm really, I wouldn't even know where to start. I read so many different things all the time. So here too, a lot of history, a lot of business history, a lot of biographies. It's really amazing how many things that we experience today have already happened before <laughs> again and again. Uh, history repeats uh, itself. Yeah. So, you know, the, the history of the, the, the car industry or the oil industry or department stores or, or work itself or, you know, the structure of corporations. There's so many things that, uh, especially from the 19th century. And I cover a lot of that in my own book. There's so many things that have happened before and that we can learn from. And Here's a question that's not on my list here, but just as you're talking about history, is there someone from the past who's no longer with us on earth mm -hmm. that if they could have a podcast, you would want to listen to it? <laughs> yes, but it's a, it's a weird choice. Uh -oh. uh, there's a guy I really like reading called uh, Reginald Horace Blythe. He was actually a, a Zen scholar, a British guy who ended up in Asia, uh, lived, lived in Japan, he was the English tutor of the emperor after World War II. And during the war, he's actually interned. He was kind of arrested wow. because he was British. Uh, and he wrote an amazing book while there called Zen in English Literature and Oriental Classics. And his life's task was to show how the best bits of English literature and any literature have Zen in them and how they relate to Asian literature. So like a crazy guy that's that spent a lot of time like really collecting amazing quotes and seemed like a guy that I would like to meet, you know, that really spent a lot of time just obsessing about a very particular aspect of the world and yeah, enjoyed it very much from, you know, it feels like from reading it. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> it, we're fortunate that people like that actually share their experiences mm -hmm. and can, their, their legacy lives on. Yeah. 
Okay, so the the last question is is one of my favorites. Everybody knows it's been listening that I like to travel, and so I ask everybody what their favorite. I'm really doing this for me, so mm-hmm. I can find out where to go. But what's your favorite vacation or holiday destination? I really love cities, so I would start with the beach in Tel Aviv. But if if I had to choose somewhere that is not my home, uh, I would say Tokyo. And then maybe even London after that. Like I like to walk around big cities, get inspired, see what people are up to. Uh, it's a little harder now that I have a five-month-old baby, but uh, congratulations we again. Can, we can keep uh, keep those healthy habits going as and well. The jet lag like, should be nothing then. You're not sleeping right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm you? used to not. I mean, I slept more in a row last night than I did uh, any time over the last five months, but still a little less than in total. I, I like cities too, and um, you know, you live in one of my favorite cities, New York. We had we had coffee there for the first time what, we about did. three years ago. Three years ago, yeah, yeah. yeah. And just been following you on Twitter ever since. And obviously, every time you come here, I try to catch up with you in some way. Yeah, and we do, right? Yeah, we, we've been yeah. to a bunch of events and activities together, and, and here we are doing a podcast in your new uh, <laughs> through your recent acquisition. So it's been amazing to follow your uh, Thank trajectory you. as well. Thank you. Well, it's an exciting time in this industry, and really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're off for your, your book launch shortly, so thank yeah. you for squeezing us in. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, and I'll just say thank you to everyone. And if you want to find out more about Dror, you can find him on LinkedIn, also on Twitter, his website, rethinking.re. Draw your Twitter is Dror Poleg, just yep. D-R-O-P-O-L-E-G. You can look in the description down below and then that's uh, all there with hyperlinks. So easy to find. And obviously if you're a real estate company or you're in the real estate business anyway, reach out to Dror because he can help you answer all the questions, book him in for a session. His insights are unparalleled. So thanks everyone for tuning in this season. We've now talked about why the demand for spaces of service is growing, uh, what footprints for spaces of service look like in a building or should look like in an asset, uh, what the money flow should look like, the investment capital. We've talked about why management agreements might make sense for certain operators and certain assets. We've talked about how landlords should, how they are responding. We've had a great season and I'm looking forward to the next season. We'll announce all of the details in the near future, so stay tuned. And if you haven't already, please connect with me on social media and let's have a discussion and continue asking questions and answering questions on space as a service. So until next time, take care of yourself. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode and every episode you listen to. And if you do, I'd love for you to share it with that one person who you think needs to hear this message. You can always find our podcast on our website at workbold.co and click on podcast or any podcast app which you use, just search hashtag workbold. It'd mean a lot to me if you leave a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Finally, please do connect with me on social media. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker on Twitter and Instagram or just search LinkedIn. Send me your questions, what you want to hear next, comment on my accent or challenge what we've talked about. Thank you for listening and don't forget fortune favors the bold. You're listening to a podcast company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at podcastsyndicator.com or Brett at podcastsyndicator.com to find out more. 
Thank you for listening, and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.